Good morning. Happy New Year. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to set up the sermon today. We're just going to briefly review where we are in the story. We're still in Mark 12, uh, so we're returning to our series in Mark. Last time we were in this chapter, two weeks ago, Jesus told the parable of the tenants. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told against the Jewish leaders? How God had given them his vineyard to tend? And instead, they wanted the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. They wanted to put themselves in God's place and take for themselves what was rightfully his. Do you remember? What was our application? Just like every week that we spend in the gospel, we saw God's beautiful design. We took a warning against sin. We had opportunity to repent from it. We had a commitment to fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. Do you remember what the fruit was exactly? Do you remember? Holy living, lives that are pleasing to God and that glorify God. What does holy living look like? I'll give you the answer. It's a simple life of love for God, a desire to be with his people, a desire to glorify him and practice charitableness and care toward one another. An intentional living, mortification of sin, removal of things from our life that don't bring glory to God. Every thought, desire, decision, and action proceeding from faith, not proceeding from fear or the corrupted motivations of the old flesh. What motivates this kind of living? We talked about this a little while back. I want you thinking about this during the study today, okay? What motivates us toward holy living? We can't white-knuckle it. We can't simply do it because we know that it's necessary. We can't do it out of guilt of not doing it. Or because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't. The fear of hellfire has a place of usefulness in the Christian life. Because before we're saved, it drives us to the cross to beg for God's mercy. And it also reminds us of what we deserve and, and drives a thankfulness to God for his mercy. Do you remember what was the problem with the holiness of the Pharisees? Holiness? We talked about this a little bit, but I'll remind you of it today. Do you know why the Pharisees wanted to be holy? Because it elevated their status. They wanted to be seen as holy for their own benefit, didn't they? It was a false holiness undergirded by pride. Do you see with, with their behavior, their motivations, a person can appear holy and seem to practice holy living, but the motivation is to elevate self. It's not because they love God and they want to please God, but because they love themselves and they want to be better than everyone else to esteem themselves highly and to receive the esteem of man. Some of their habits and behaviors might look like fruitfulness, but are they really fruitfulness? Ultimately, what, what has to undergird the desire to be fruitful? What needs to support that? Do you remember a few sermons ago, going through the Psalms passages and what it was that motivated the psalmist? It wasn't fear of hell. 
It wasn't a desire to be better than everyone else. It wasn't a guilt or a legalism thinking that righteous living saves you. Do you remember what it was? It was delight in God. Delight in God. Taking pleasure in God. Relishing his goodness. Wanting to be near him because of how wonderful he is. Wondering at him. Pure love for him. Fear of him. Meaning a reverent, awestruck response to perceiving the truth about him. Last time we looked at all those psalms. But do you remember what Job said at the very end of his dialogue with God in Job chapter 42? He perceives the truth about God. And then what does he say? Job 42, he says, God's works are too wonderful for him to understand. Too wonderful for him to understand. He was awestruck. He perceives the truth about God's power and God's sovereignty. And then he immediately does what? What does he say right after that? He says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. It seems kind of like a strange response, doesn't it? But it's not. The dust and ashes make it seem like this kind of ominous or negative thing, but it's not. What does it mean? When he says he despises himself, it doesn't mean he hates himself. It means he thinks little of himself. Another use of that Hebrew word for despise, it means to reject. In light of understanding who God is, Job is rejecting the idea of his own importance that he previously held. His perspective has been properly realigned, rejected the idea of his own importance. The dust and ashes just means he recognizes his place before the creator. God made us just like he made the dirt. We have no standing to make demands of him, just as the dirt, the dust, has no standing to make demands of us. Just as ashes are easily carried away to nothing in a wind, insignificant and unremembered, so are we, given our short, powerless lives before an eternal, all-powerful God. Is that depressing? I'm looking at Joey. It would be if he didn't love us and he hadn't paid a high price for us and adopted us as his own children and given us an eternal inheritance. Amen. When we see the truth about God and we believe it and we love him, it motivates us to holy living. Back to fruitfulness. Do you remember what the fruit is? It's proper worship of God. What does that look like in the lives of God's people? It's a life of repentance and contrition. It's a life of putting off the old and putting on the new. What motivates that? If we're like Job, we are simply responding to having understood the truth about God and believing it, recognizing how small and imperfect we are compared to an awesome and perfect God. If we're like the psalmist, we desire to be near God because of his goodness. We can't stand to be away from him because there's nothing better than to be in the presence of God. Because he loved us, we love him in return. Once we see how good he is, everything else that's good doesn't satisfy. 
on its own. Things that are good are only enjoyed in light of God's goodness. So we stop idolizing them. And we start loving the one who made everything that is good. With regard to our holy living, if we ever feel like we've made it, like we're holy, we haven't even begun to repent. Calvin said that a man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Jolene got me a coffee mug that had that on it once, and I broke it last year. Very sad. We'll be making new idols to repent of until the day we reach perfection, the last day. Beloved, a life of worshiping God is a life of repentance. Holy living begins with delighting in God and then tearing down the altars of other things you delight in more than you delight in him. See how good he is and then delight in him alone. Then enjoy the good things that he's given to you in light of his goodness. So that's a little mini sermon for you today in the review. But I wanted you thinking about this as we enter into today's lesson. Now we'll remind ourselves again of where we are in the story. We're still in the Passion Week. The Jewish leaders are actively conspiring to find a way to condemn Jesus by any means necessary. We're going to see in today's lesson that they're getting more and more desperate and will go to great lengths to do this. In chapter 11, the Jewish religious leaders challenged his authority. Paul taught us about that a few weeks ago. In the beginning of chapter 12, he's just told the parable of the tenants against those same men, and it was obvious to everyone listening that he was talking about them. What did it say at the end in verse 12? It says they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. So they left him and went away. Let's read our text and see what our passage has for us today. Turn to Mark 12. We're just going to have the one section today. Mark 12, starting with verse 13, ending at verse 17. The word of the Lord. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching today. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts again toward you. We pray that all here and all that listen to this would have ears to hear. And Lord, let us hear. Let these words enter our minds and take root in our hearts. May your spirit be active among your people today, Lord, as we 
learn how to value properly the things of God and understand rightly how to view the things of men. Thank you, Lord. Be with us today. Amen. So last week we finished with verse 12. And then this morning we started with verse 13. In between verse 12 and 13, you can almost see the Pharisees going away to have a little football huddle. You ever played sports and your strategy wasn't working? So you had to have a team huddle and come up with a new plan? I wasn't very good at sports, so probably not, but I know some of you were. You had to try a new angle, maybe even an unconventional strategy. That's exactly what's happening here. Let me explain why. The Pharisees decided to include the Herodians in their strategy. They're going to try a new play. Why is this a big deal? Well, you have to understand who the Herodians are for this to seem important. The Herodians are not a religious faction like the Pharisees, priests, and elders of the Jews. They're a political faction. The Herodians were those loyal to Herod Antipas, who was the local ruler appointed by the Roman Empire to ensure compliance by the Jews to Roman law and to ensure that the Jews would pay tribute to Rome. As a general rule, Rome was was pretty laissez-faire about local customs. When the Romans conquered a people, they didn't try to convert them to a new state religion or get rid of their local laws. All they really cared about was that the society stayed orderly so it could continue to produce tax revenue that would go to Caesar. So they would put in place a local ruler who would oversee the region but be loyal to Rome. So the Herodians were those Jews who were loyal to Herod and exercising Herod's power and dominion in the area. They saw cooperation with Rome as a means to prosperity and were not overly religious, and they were not concerned with Israel having independence or freedom from the Roman Empire. Now that you understand who the Herodians are, if you're a Jew and you desire the restoration of a wealthy, powerful, independent Israel, Would you take kindly to the Herodians? Would you be friends with them or want to work with them? No. The Herodians are Jews, but they wear the oppressor's boots, don't they? Loyal Jews could see Herodians at best as very mistaken and misguided, and at worst, as disloyal or traitorous. Would you want to form an alliance with them? In ordinary circumstances, never. So why do it here? This is how big the perceived threat of Jesus has become. Both the religious faction and the secular political faction see the danger that he is to their positions. The religious leaders are afraid they'll lose their wealth and status as holy men and leaders of God's people. The political leaders are afraid that the entire political structure on which their authority rests could come tumbling down in a violent revolution. So they begrudgingly enter into a tenuous alliance. That's why I said earlier we'd see how they were desperate. A Pharisee and a Herodian could hardly stand to look each other in the eye. And yet it's necessary here for them to bring Jesus down. 
We know from Luke 13, 32 that Herod himself desired that Jesus be killed. Jesus actually used a pejorative to describe Herod in that passage. It was an insult and a deserved one. Jesus called Herod a fox. Back then, calling someone a fox wasn't like today. Today, when we call someone a fox, what do we mean? We mean either they're, they're, they're kind of really good looking or that they have kind of an abundance of like crafty intelligence, right? The young guys might use it differently than the old guys. Either way, it's usually kind of a compliment. But back then, what was a fox? Just a cowardly animal that kills your chickens. An animal that slinks around cowardly, trying to do injury for his own benefit. Jesus is basically calling Herod a coward. Possibly referring to Herod's cowardly execution of John the Baptist that he only carried out because he was afraid of his wife and of losing his reputation before his nobility. The insult certainly would have made its way back to Herod, further entrenching Herod and his faction of Herodians against Jesus. So now there's a shared interest from these two opposing factions, the Jews and the Herodians. You can almost see them in their little huddle. The text just tells us straight away at the end of verse 13, they wanted to trap him in his talk. Now let's read verse 14. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So they start their dialogue with him with a little flattery. This doesn't fool Jesus, but it does present anyone else listening an air of good intentions. Can you see how subtle this is? Remember, Jesus is not their intended audience. They're talking to him, but they want everyone else to see what he's going to say. They want to discredit him. So really, they're putting on a show for everyone else that's nearby. Certainly those crowds that are still following him around. They want it to seem like they're asking the question in good faith, don't they? But they're not. I actually found this very sad. Look carefully at what they said. Everything they said was true, wasn't it? Is Jesus true? Yes. Is he a respecter of persons? Meaning, does he show partiality based on someone's status or appearance? No, he doesn't do that. He is consistently impartial. Does he truly teach the way of God? Yes, he does. Do you see how these men spoke the truth that they themselves did not believe with the intent to perpetuate falsehood? This is a result of a hardened heart that belongs to an enemy of God. We studied this exact thing last year in 2 Corinthians. Paul was defending the true gospel against those false teachers who were only out to enrich themselves. They did the exact same things, didn't they? Pretending some true teachings to the church so that they would gain influence among the believers, and then they used that influence to discredit Paul and others with pure motives, those ones that only want to preach the gospel to God's glory. How does Paul conclude his argument against them in 2 Corinthians? He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Do we understand? The enemy always uses the same tactics. But take heart. God promises their end will correspond to their deeds. Back to the Pharisees and Herodians. They give Jesus a binary question, meaning a yes or no question. And it's a question that's not possible to give a yes or no answer to without offending someone present. If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar and you should pay them, he's going to offend the Jews who see Rome as an oppressive occupying force, robbing them of their wealth, independence, and reputation. If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay them, it's not legal to pay them, he can be arrested for sedition or treason. If he says no, the Herodians can make an argument before a Roman court that he's truly a revolutionary, inciting the people to violence against the state, and that is a crime for which he could receive the death penalty. Another subtle thing about this question that they present, it's a real question that would have concerned your average Jewish person of the day. Many of them would have wrestled with this. It's not like they had a choice. They had to pay the taxes. But many of them would have wondered whether it pleased God that they paid taxes to Rome. Others would have difficulty paying both the Roman tax and the temple tax and providing all the sacrifices that were required of a Jew and their living expenses on top of that. Some of them simply just didn't want to. Others would have a spiritual conviction that maybe it wasn't right that they pay so many taxes to a wicked, godless government that oppresses them and enforces wicked laws. So the question would have gotten everyone's attention. Do you see how well designed this trap is that's laid? The question certainly has our attention, doesn't it? Some of us might feel a kinship with those Jews wrestling with that question. Let's see how Jesus answers. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, we'll stop there. We can take a principle from this that will help us today. We live in an age where there's so much hostility to the Christian faith and the scripture. If this hasn't happened to you yet, it will soon. Someone who hates God and has no respect for the scripture or your convictions will ask you a question to try and stump you, to discredit your faith They'll try to find an inconsistency in your set of beliefs to show that you're some kind of hypocrite or that the scriptures aren't consistent with themselves. This question in verse 14 was not asked in good faith. Even though it's a real question, it's not asked in good faith. The people asking it don't really want to know the answer. They want to make Jesus look bad. Beloved, when someone asks you a question like this, don't feel like you have to answer it. I would even encourage you, often it's better that you don't. Especially if answering is going to suck you into an argument that will cause you to sin. I like to argue. <laughs> I probably couldn't have been an attorney if I'd made different choices as a young man. And I can win an argument. How many of you have had an argument with me? You know I can win an argument. But winning the argument doesn't win souls, does it? especially if the argument gets ugly. 
Not only do you further entrench your opponent against you, but everyone else watching sees that a Christian can get sucked into an ugly argument just as easily as the atheist who started it. So if you think you're going to get sucked into a sinful argument that won't be spiritually profitable, it's better to just reject the opportunity. You don't even have to respond. If you really want to, you can say something like, I don't think you're asking that question in good faith, so I'm not going to respond. That's what Jesus essentially is saying here. He is going to respond, but he's, he's letting the audience know. This is not asked in good faith. When he says, why do you put me to the test? That word for test, it means to tempt, to entice, with a purpose of scrutinizing. It's a rich word. Nowadays, we might, we might say, why are you baiting me? He recognizes this is just bait to make him look bad. So he calls it out as bait. He is going to, be, to respond, but he wants everyone on looking to know that the question was not asked in good faith. That's why he says that. He's also rejecting their presuppositions, actually rejecting the entire worldview from which the question proceeds. Continuing in verse 15, he says, bring me a denarius, let me look at it. And they brought one. We can learn something even from this. I want you to think about how Jesus looks at things. When Jesus looks, what does he see? Through what lens does he view the world? Where is his focus? Why is he alive and why did he come into the world? We've talked about this before. He said he came to do the will of his Father. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to die for sinners. All of those are spiritual actions with a spiritual purpose. More broadly, why did God create us? So that we would worship him. He created us with not merely a physical purpose, but a spiritual one. Jesus views every circumstance through a spiritual lens. That doesn't mean he doesn't see the practical implications. But the material, the physical, he understands that's only the surface layer of life. What's beneath that layer is the spiritual Everything has a spiritual implication that's more important. Further, God has orchestrated and has a spiritual purpose in all things. We'll continue this thought in a few moments. He said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. You remember the denarius is the Roman currency. Jews would normally use shekels, but to transact in the context of the Roman Empire and pay taxes to Caesar, they would need denarius. You remember the money changers in the temple where the Jews could turn their denarius back into shekels for the temple tax? The money changers don't do it for free. Think if you're a Jew and your earning is primarily in shekels and then it's time to pay your Caesar tax. Can you imagine having not only to pay the tax but go out of your way to find a money changer who's going to charge you their margin, whatever that is, just so you can pay the Roman oppressors the unjust tax that they enforce to fund their unjust government so they can enforce their unjust laws. Wouldn't that sting? Our American money has our presidents on it. Most of us, most of us at least, enjoy with some fondness the men that are depicted on our money and the ideas that they represent. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, John Adams, Ulysses S. Grant. 
not a president, but a founding father, Benjamin Franklin. Can you imagine if we had a war with a foreign country and we lost and we all had to learn that country's language and we had to exchange our dollars for their strange currency so we could pay their tax? And sometimes the exchange rate isn't favorable, robbing us of even more of our wealth. And every time we're doing that, we have to look at the face of the dictator that's oppressing us. That's the mindset that they're in. Maybe the mindset some of us are in now. Here's what Jesus says about it. Verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We have to understand how Jesus views the Roman occupation of Israel versus how the Jews saw it. A common Jew or a member of the religious class would think, this government isn't legitimate. It's not fair we have to pay these taxes. They shouldn't be here. We shouldn't have to obey them. This isn't what God designed or what God's people should have to endure. Does Jesus share that view? Real question, does he? You tell me. No, he doesn't. What does Jesus say when he's standing before Pontius Pilate before being condemned to death? You remember? I want you to see this. Turn over to John 19. We're going to look at this. Jesus is before Pilate, and the Jews are demanding that he be executed. Pilate is now questioning Jesus a second time, and Jesus is not answering him. Jesus remains silent. Pilate invokes his own authority. Start with verse 10, John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then in verse 11, pay attention to this. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pay close attention to that. Does Jesus correct Pilate and tell him that, he, that his authority over Jesus isn't real? Is that what he said? No, he doesn't say that. Does he delegitimize Pilate's authority, try to undermine it somehow? No, he doesn't do that. He does the opposite, actually, doesn't he? He legitimizes Pilate's authority. He tells Pilate that God had given him the authority. Jesus sees the authority of a ruler, even a wicked one, through a spiritual lens. And he recognizes that God is the one who put that authority in place. Even when they're wicked, even when they don't perpetuate justice, and not merely in spite of the ruler's wickedness. In fact, God gives wicked rulers to a people or to a nation purposefully. How many times in the Old Testament did God turn his people over to the authority of a wicked ruler as a response to their sin? Or to bring judgment on a nation? Or to accomplish some other purpose we can only imagine that's part of his perfect plan? Read Judges. It happens more times than you can count. Or the Babylonian exile and captivity. In Isaiah 3, 4, God says it's a judgment when he appoints children to rule over us. 
And then farther down in verse 12, he says, those same children will be our oppressors. The end of that chapter talks about how we won't have comfort, wealth, and luxury when we're under judgment. There's a sense of this ruler who's a petulant child, stubborn, petty, selfish, taking advantage of the nation to suit their own whims and pleasures, stealing the wealth to enrich themselves, enacting unjust laws and punishments, crushing the opposition of any, call, any who call for reason and justice, inexperienced and unwise, sometimes just plain old evil. God puts these leaders in place, church, and their authority is legitimate. It is God's authority. What purpose does he have in this? We don't always know in the moment. In the moment, it might just be painful and it seems like something we just have to endure. Yet consider the following. Without a wicked ruler, would Abraham have gone to rescue Lot and would he have met Melchizedek? Without a wicked ruler, would God's power have been displayed to bring his people out of Egypt? Without a wicked ruler, would all of Israel have seen Elijah defeat the prophets of Baal on the mountainside? Where all those false prophets were slaughtered by God's servant? Without a wicked ruler, would the Son of God have been crucified for our sins? Could we have been redeemed? Think about the Roman Empire. Everyone spoke Greek and the Romans maintained really good roads because of, so they could bring the taxes back to Caesar. Because of the Roman Empire and the New Testament church starting at that point in history, the good news of the gospel spread to all the known world efficiently and powerfully. It's not by accident, beloved. Did the Jews suffer under the Romans? Yes. Were the rulers wicked? Yes. Did God appoint and orchestrate all of it? You answer. Broadly, we're not, we're not going to get into an exhaustive treatise today on how we view government, how we submit to them and obey them. I will talk about taxes a little bit. But I just want you to get the one thing. The governments of the earth get their authority from the one who made the earth. Just governments and unjust ones have a legitimate authority grounded in God's authority. Inevitably, someone will come to me and say, well, our government taxes us unjustly and then they spend the money on wicked things. I've said that. And it's true. It's true. And it's horrible. All I can answer is, God has a purpose. Maybe it's a just judgment on our nation. But while we feel the pain of our pockets being lightened and our wealth being stolen, we can't simply live in that materialistic view and not look at it with a spiritual lens. Every time we pay an unjust tax, our attitude toward it matters. Do you resent God's authority for placing those wicked rulers, wicked laws, and wicked taxes over you? Or do you rest knowing that our God is in the heavens and laughs and does whatever he pleases? Psalm 115.3 Do you take comfort that the heart of the king is like stream in the, of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills? Proverbs 2.11 are you trusting, resting, and rejoicing in God's sovereignty over all earthly rulers? We do have the opportunity here in our unique form of government to plead our case, use legal avenues to minimize our, our tax burden, change laws we don't like, 
We can complain legally. We can vote out what we don't like and vote in what we do. We can try and replace wicked rulers and wicked laws with righteous ones. We should participate in all that. We should. For love of righteousness and love of our neighbor, we ought to participate fully in the avenues available to us to make the changes we want to see. In fact, I would go as far as to say that a Christian has a duty more than anyone else to participate in government and work more toward a righteous and just society. The point I want you to get from this little part of this verse is that God is over all of it. He not only sees it, he appoints it. And our heart's response to our government's authority comes from the lens with which we view the world. Do you see God's authority behind the things happening around you? When you see wickedness, what happens in your heart? What happens? Are you resentful or hopeless? Or does it cause you to fall on your knees and worship to God and plead with him for the changes that you know need to happen? So what do we do when they're wicked? Do we participate in revolutions? Sometimes. Big asterisk on the sometimes. That's another topic, and I'll talk about it with you later after the sermon if you like. That's not the point today. Do we obey their every whim? No, we don't. That's part of rendering to God what belongs to God. We owe him our lives of obedience and worship. We owe him our corporate worship as a church, and we delight in that opportunity to participate in that. When the government tells us to disobey him directly, we don't obey them. When they told us we couldn't sing, we kept singing, didn't we? When they told Peter and the apostles to stop preaching the gospel, what did they say in response? Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. These new laws where medical providers have to commit abortions, Christians, Christian doctors and nurses, they have to disobey that, even if it costs them their job. God's law trumps man's law. If they ever tell us again that we can't meet, we will meet anyway. Maybe we'll meet somewhere that is harder for them to find us, but we will meet. We do pay our taxes. Turn to Romans 13. I'm not going to exposit all of Romans 13. That would be its own sermon, but I'm going to quote verse 6 and 7 today. It rests on the same argument we just made. God appoints those authorities and rejection of them is rejection of his authority. Romans 13. Romans 13, starting with verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. In 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Peter tells the church, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or the governors that they send. He's talking about government authorities. In the very next paragraph in 1 Peter, Peter tells the slaves to obey their masters cheerfully, whether the master is a good and just master or a wicked, oppressive one. It's the same principle. 
We're to live cheerfully, submissively, graciously, even under the authority of those who are wicked and unjust. Some of this might be hard to hear. Those of you that know me well understand it's hard for me to say. Maybe harder for me to say than harder for you to hear. How do we do that? How do we live cheerfully, submissively, and graciously? 1 Peter 2.19 gives us the answer. Look at this, it's beautiful. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Do you see that? Our mind being fixed on God and his works, his kingdom, his objectives, and his glory. That's the key. That's the key to being content, even in the face of suffering under a wicked ruler or bad taxes. Trusting that he's good, delighting in his goodness. If you love your money, loss of it due to wicked taxation will make you miserable. If you delight in God, it's just a little pain to endure for his purposes and his glory while we live in this mortal plane. It's just a little time, beloved. How do we respond to that pain? With contempt for our government? Anger? Bitterness? Resentment? Hopelessness? No. What are we supposed to do? Paul told Timothy in in 1 Timothy 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's okay to not want to be taxed unjustly. That's not sin. And when you are taxed, do what's available to you as a citizen of the country you're in. Out of love for righteousness and love for your neighbor, use every avenue available to you to change things. All of that's good and fine. I would even argue it's a Christian duty. But what primarily? God tells us to plead with him about it. Let that pain motivate you to turn to him and see your dependence on him. Trust him with a hopefulness that his purposes are moving forward and not being thwarted. Pray for repentance and righteousness for your leaders. The point of your prayer, did you see that in the end of verse 2? It's so that you can live a peaceful and holy life. Not one that's full of wealth. As an aside... We live in a wealthy area. We're a relatively wealthy church, all things considered. By global standards, even the poorest among us are astronomically wealthy. But if you think wealth would help you be happier, don't believe that. It's a lie from the pit. Use your eyes and look around. Wealthy families have just as many problems as poor ones, don't they? Illness, addiction, relationship problems, Wayward kids, financial stress. Wealthy families have a problem that poor families don't, which is that they can throw money at things instead of running to the Father for help. I want you to understand, nothing I've said today is against the wealthy or exhorting you not to be diligent and work hard and save your money and improve your situation and strive for more righteous laws and more opportunity for your family. That's not the intent here. So don't take it that way. What does it mean to render unto God the things that are God's? Don't view the world through a materialistic lens. 
See it spiritually. The pain of taxation and unjust rulers, count them small potatoes to the gain of knowing God and delighting in him and the riches of the heavenly inheritance that you have received. Some of us are news junkies, addicted to the outrage machine. Just because it's conservative news or they give, give a voice to your favorite politicians while making the other side's politicians look bad, that doesn't mean it's spiritual, beloved. That doesn't mean it's good. Turn it off. Delight in him. Be content that your sin has been paid. Your mission isn't to leave a big inheritance for your kids. You can try. That's all well and good. That's fine. But that's not primarily why he made you. He made you to be in his kingdom of priests and to give you a heavenly inheritance, didn't he? So your objective is to live a holy life of worship to God, delight in him, love his word and hide it in your heart, thank him for your salvation and walk by the spirit and tell others so that they may too be adopted when they repent and believe. We don't have a benediction today because it's the communion service, so I want you to meditate on Titus 3, 1 through 7, as we prepare for communion. This was our scripture reading this morning, and I want to end with it too. Let's read this together. Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, turn our hearts toward you. Give us the joy of our salvation, the joy of our eternal, imperishable inheritance that you are guarding for us with diligence, that you're storing up for us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells your people. You truly have made your dwelling with us. What a rich inheritance, God. Help us to repent of our materialism our joy in worldly things. Help us to see with a spiritual eye. Help us to render to you what belongs to you, a life of holiness and worship, that we might be a called out people, a kingdom of priests. We pray in Jesus' name.